Hi, everybody. This is John Donvan at Intelligence Squared U.S. And despite some not so long ago hopes, this pandemic is not over yet, nor is the onslaught that we have seen from the start of this thing of disagreements about the way that we are responding to the pandemic. Some of them uh, not so nice, some of them quite honest and principled. Well, the debate we're about to have now is really the disagreement of the moment, because in this moment, we have vaccines and we now have clearance from the CDC for certain large groups of Americans to get a booster shot. And the question in this moment is, should so many Americans be getting shots for the third time when so many people around the world have not yet had their first? My guests today in another episode of our Agree to Disagree series, where we do principled but opposing viewpoints on our questions. On this question, it's Dr. Lena Wen and Dr. Ven Gupta. Doctors, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you. Great to be with you. Great to be with you, John. I, I want to start, uh, I haven't yet signaled which side of this uh, issue either of you are on, but I want to start before getting to that and making that clear uh, with an editorial that appeared in Scientific American in September. It was published and written by um, three officials from the World Health Organization, including the organization's chief scientist. I'm going to quote now. It makes little sense to give boosters to people who may in fact not need them when billions of others around the world have not even received a first dose. Then later on it says, countries that are rich in resources can swiftly bring an end to this deadly inequity if only they have the moral backbone to do so. It's really a call for the United States and other nations that have this capability, that have purchased the vaccines, that have the stockpiles, not to do the booster shots until everybody else in the world has at least their first dose. It's a conversation that's been going on a long time, but now that we're in booster shot time period, it's really come into focus. So I want to start with you, uh, Ven Gupta. What's your position on the argument that we should hold off on booster shots as a broad general choice that Americans can make now until the rest of the world can catch up? John, I, I agree with it uh, uh, largely. I, I will say that this, the concept of boosters for all is an economic argument, plain and simple. It's not a moral argument. It's, it's immoral in my view to be providing boosters for everybody for the reasons that uh, WHO scientists articulated in that editorial in Scientific American. And it's not a scientific one. I mine went into being fully vaccinated with two doses of the Pfizer vaccine in December of 2020, as are many of my healthcare provider colleagues, including Dr. Wen. Uh, and yet there isn't an epidemic of any of us ending up in the hospital with severe COVID. And we're exposed. We're a high-risk group. And so certainly more is often better when it comes to vaccines. But is it necessary? Is it ethical? Is it scientific? It's none of those things. And often you'll see that this concept or this debate is meant to seem like not a debate at all. We'll see the press secretary, for example, refer to this concept of boosters for all while also providing more to countries that need it as a false choice. And that, unfortunately, is just not true. The fact is, is that this is a choice. By providing more boosters for more people with supply that exists right now, we are fundamentally altering market dynamics. Right now, vaccines are going to the highest bidder. We are willing to pay more per vaccine than what the WHO, through its COVAX facility, can afford to pay for that same exact vaccine. So what are we seeing? We're seeing places like the Caribbean and Latin America, in 
huge parts of Africa and South Asia, that vaccine supply is limited because they cannot afford to pay the same per vaccine cost as the United States can, as the EU can, which is why we're oversupplied and trying to make these arguments and uh, engage in verbal gymnastics to justify a policy that fundamentally is economic. I completely disagree with the Scientific American op-ed, respectfully. And actually, to Dr. Gupta's point, I agree with much of what he said. I do agree about the importance of having a global distribution of the vaccines. It is the moral, ethical thing to do. It also is out of self-interest as well, because we want to prevent the development of new mutations in other parts of the world that could impact us here in the U.S. That said, here is what I dispute. We actually know, based on a lot of emerging data from Israel, from Qatar, from the U.S., that the vaccines do have a waning effect against symptomatic infection. Now, I take Dr. Gupta's point, and I agree that the vaccines are still holding up well against severe illness, and that's fantastic. The problem, though, is that they are waning against illness against getting COVID-19, we do see a much higher rate of breakthrough infections over the course of time. Israel, for example, found that the effectiveness declined from 95% to 39% comparing January through April versus June and July. Um, a more recent study from the U.S., um, Kaiser, um, from the Kaiser Health System, found that the effectiveness declined from 88% to 47%. In Qatar, declining, um, from, uh, declining all the way to 20% effectiveness. And I guess here is what I would dispute. I think at the end of the day, this is not so much a question of science, but of values, as in we're actually looking at the same data here. But I think it is not the right thing for federal health officials or certainly for the World Health Organization to be saying to Americans what it is that we should be caring about. There are a lot of people who might say, as Dr. Gupta and maybe some others will, hey, as long as I'm protected against hospitalization and death, that's great. But I think there are plenty of other people who will take exactly the opposite approach when looking at these data and say, I don't want to get COVID at all. Maybe I'm a single parent who has to take care of young kids. Maybe I don't want to get long COVID. Maybe I don't want to transmit COVID to people that I work with or live with. And preventing symptomatic infection is in itself an, an important goal. And to me, this is like the idea of um, when you're on an airplane, they say that you have to put on your own oxygen mask before putting on other people's oxygen mask. Ultimately, you want to do both. But right now, the United States is a major hotspot. We really need to help people here in the U.S. as we also assist people around the world, too. Vin Gupta, um, what's your response to Lena? Lena pushed back very hard on a lot of the points that you made. So why don't you dig in on that? You know, I disagree with Lena just on, on looking at the data points. And I think it's important to understand what those percentages mean and who they are referring to. The CDC has collected this data, it's aggregated it so we can all look at all these different studies in totality. What have they found? They found that of the 5,300 people who have died with vaccine breakthrough illness through September 27th of 2021, 86% of those individuals are 65 years of age or older. And so we're not debating who should get boosters. I think some people should get boosters. Those that are 65 and older or those with a high-risk medical condition. I think that is not controversial. That's what the data is showing us. When we're talking about these decreases in vaccine effectiveness, when they've been reported to dramatically decline 
Usually that's in reference to whether or not somebody tests positive, not whether they end up in the hospital. But when we've seen people actually die with vaccine breakthrough illness, six months, eight months, 12 months out from their initial series, they have one thing in common, they're high risk, which is why the FDA and their vaccine experts, the CDC and their vaccine experts, the WHO and all their experts have said, boosters for some make sense. Boosters for all, all it does is it confuses people and makes those that are unvaccinated think that the vaccines don't work. It terrifies those that think they're protected. So what are we really achieving here? And I'll lastly just say for, for me that, you know, if we're fundamentally redefining what it means to be vaccinated as never testing positive, then we're trotting new ground. Then we need to revisit how we think about vaccinations, not just for COVID, but maybe potentially for other infectious diseases. Because we're dealing with a respiratory virus and there's no vaccine that has ever existed for a respiratory virus that's going to prevent you from testing positive for that illness. So try to keep you out of the hospital in the best case scenario, but not necessarily prevent you from testing positive. The purpose of vaccination for the last 250 years is to prevent people from ending up in the hospital. And we should continue with that definition. I respectfully disagree that preventing hospitalization and death is not the only goal of vaccination. A major reason to get vaccinated is not to get ill in the first place. And I don't mean just preventing asymptomatic illness. Ideally, that can also, that is also something that can be achieved. This idea of sterilizing immunity, preventing you from getting COVID and transmitting it to others, that would be ideal. That's not quite where we're at. But one of the reasons we get vaccinated is to prevent getting sick in the first place. In fact, when we recall when Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson first came out with their data, one of the most important data points was this idea of preventing 95% of infections, preventing 90% of infections. I mean, that was an important data point that we were talking about. I do think that there are plenty of people who may be thinking, as long as I am not going to get severely ill, I don't want to get a booster. And I think that's okay for the time being. I actually do think that at some point, the definition of fully vaccinated is going to have to change to include potentially three doses of the Pfizer, Moderna, or two doses of Johnson & Johnson. But right now, I think it's okay to say, let's let people who don't want to get a booster not get a booster. But at the same time, there are going to be plenty of people who feel very strongly. And in fact, we know this based on data that the majority of Americans who are vaccinated went when told that there's a booster available. The vast majority studies are showing 60, 70% of individuals have said they want to get a booster if it means that it reduces their chance of having a breakthrough infection. Just to emphasize this, a breakthrough infection may be very mild. It could be not, not much worse than a cold. Maybe some people barely have symptoms, but some people who have breakthrough infections and not a small number, but a, a number of people who have breakthrough infections, they don't get that ill, but they could still be out of work, um, be unable to really take care of their kids and, and go about daily activities for a week or longer. Some could still have lingering effects, including ongoing shortness of breath or cough or fatigue or loss of sense of taste or smell. A lot of people People want to prevent that. And my point simply is that we should be able to allow people to make that decision for themselves. Individuals who are in high-risk occupations, who maybe there's somebody who lives at home with an unvaccinated family member who refuses to be, to be vaccinated. Why shouldn't that person have the opportunity to choose for themselves to get an additional level of protection? And again, I do actually think that this is a false choice of the U.S. versus the rest of the world. There was a, an analysis done by NBC 
that looked at between, I think it was March and August of this year, that there were more than 15 million doses of the vaccine that were wasted. Right now, we don't have a way to repurpose these additional doses here in the U.S. for export globally. I would much rather that these uh, that these unused doses go to people who really want the booster rather than have them go to waste. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to learn more. More debate when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's get back to our debate. I'd like to I'd like to jump in as a layperson and, and, and ask for some clarification on a point that's been made about the purpose of a vaccine or the or the ideal uh, achievement that a vaccine can we, we can hope for from a vaccine and 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 that is you were saying uh, Ben Gupta it's not to prevent infection it's to mitigate the the, the consequences of of, a, of an infection. I find that an interesting thing because I would have thought that that the idea when we're talking about let's stop the spread of this thing by getting everybody vaccinated, that spread happens through infection. So is where what am I missing here in terms of if 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 the if it's if the real goal is just to mitigate the consequences of infection and not to stop infection, then what role does vaccine play in stopping the spread of infection? John, you, you raise a really important point. I think this is where Lena and I have been trying to bring clarity in our day jobs and when we have platforms to this specific issue, which is no vaccine outside from very few. I'll name human papilloma, uh, the vaccine that protects against HPV, human papilloma virus. That vaccine is the exception to what I'm about to say, which is most vaccines do not prevent you from testing positive for the, uh, for the virus that, or the bacteria that they are intending to protect you against. So what am I, what, what am I saying here? Flu vaccine, COVID, the vaccine against chickenpox, varicella vaccine. All these vaccines are incredibly effective at keeping you out of the hospital, preventing severe illness from any of the aforementioned viruses. And yet, if you're fully vaccinated against the flu in any given year, you can still transmit the virus. So obviously, now we're learning the same thing with all these COVID-19 vaccines. So what does it mean? It means that throughout history, we've been at doing this for over 200 years. Are there vaccines? Are there vaccines that provide sterilizing immunity, as Lena mentioned, that prevent you from ending up in the hospital with that specific pathogen and also prevent you from testing positive? Yes. But do those vaccines exist for a respiratory virus? No, they have not existed in the many decades that we've been trying to vaccinate against respiratory viruses, and no vaccine will ever exist, in my view, against a contagious respiratory virus that will prevent somebody who received a full series from ever testing positive, unless we continue to boost them every six months. And again, and and just to respond to something Lena said earlier, Lena, I, I completely agree with you that People should have the option, if they should so choose, to get boosted, presuming we all have that choice. That if somebody doesn't want to risk getting long COVID, then of course, and if we think that getting a third shot is going to mitigate against that risk, of course it will, they should have that optionality. But that optionality should be provided to everybody. And if the trade-off here is that some get a third shot and prevent or mitigate the risk of long COVID, while many 
in, say, Jamaica, in our own hemisphere, don't even have the initial series to prevent them from getting hospitalized. And we're hearing from PAHO, uh, uh, the Pan-American Health Organization, that it is purely because the United States purchased too many vaccines, that they are not able to afford enough through COVAX, that that trade-off is unacceptable. Vin Gupta, when you say it would be okay if all of us had that choice, by all of us, you're talking, you're not talking about all Americans, you're talking all of us humans, you're speaking globally. Am I correct about that? Exactly. All right. And I just want to point out some, bring some numbers to, to listeners. So far, uh, our data is showing, our research is showing that close to 6 billion doses of uh, COVID vaccines have been administered globally through the middle of September. 80% of those doses went to people in high and upper middle income countries. Less than one half of 1% went to people in low income countries. And and I think that's the imbalance that you're pointing to, um, Vin. And, um, and, and Lena, that you're saying that, yeah, there's an argument there, but it's a value argument not a science argument. And I, I kind of want to understand what you mean by it being a value argument. Well, I think there are two issues of this question of values and not science, and they're separate and, and related. And so let me, let, let, me, let me go into a bit more detail into both. The first is that we are disagreeing ultimately, as you put your finger on, John, on this question of what is the purpose of vaccination? I still think that the purpose of vaccination, yes, it is also to reduce severe disease, but reducing disease, not reducing the ability to test positive necessarily, but reducing disease in itself is a major reason to get vaccinated. The flu vaccine, for example, it actually does. In addition to reducing the severity of your illness, it also reduces your likelihood of contracting flu in the first place and therefore also of transmitting it to others. And so I think there is a value argument of what is the purpose of vaccination? That's that's the first that's the first thing. But the second thing is, I think, equally important here. And, and here, you know, I'm just going to say it as, as it is, which is that we live in a very unequal world, right? When you look at any medical treatment, when you look at food access, when you look at income inequality, I mean, when you look at cancer treatments or, um, or access to heart disease treatment, it is vastly unequal in different parts of the world. Now, we should, I, I think it is a reasonable thing to say we need to improve the quality of healthcare all around the world. But we also have to accept the reality that it is not equal. And here is the value argument of what I think is another important distinction here, which is the importance of separating public health versus medicine. From a public health standpoint, and maybe even from a humanitarian standpoint, it would make sense to do exactly as Ben has been talking about, distributing vaccines to the world, because that is the right thing ethically to be doing. However, if I am treating an individual patient, and let's say that this is a patient who is 40-some years old with chronic renal disease and emphysema and heart disease and diabetes, and they're a frontline worker in a nursing home um, or, or a grocery worker exposed to a, a lot of people who may be unvaccinated around them. If that person says, I really want to get an additional dose of the vaccine to better protect myself, because I know that if I get ill from coronavirus, I could end up in the hospital, something that's a mild infection to somebody else because of my chronic medical conditions could push me over the edge. Can I get a booster? It would be 
unethical for me as the physician to deny this patient the ability to better protect themselves. Yes, from a public health standpoint, maybe the right thing to do is to give that booster to somebody else halfway around the world. But if that patient is is in front of me right now, I cannot deny that patient the best care possible. The same thing could be said for any cancer treatment or any other treatment that so many people around the world don't have access to. Well, you know, this is why Lena is such a great doctor and I respect her so much because I would do the same thing for that high risk patient. And we don't disagree on that. And no one disagrees with what Lena just said, including everybody on the FDA and CDC advisory panels for the vaccines, which is to say, if you have a high risk patient because of their medical history or because of their occupation, they should have access to a booster shot. We do not disagree on that. And even the WHO doesn't necessarily disagree with that. We're disagreeing with the concept of boosters for everybody, which I view as a luxury. If you're not high risk, if you're not in a frontline capacity, it would be wonderful to have the choice. But just because we live in an unequal world doesn't mean we have to propagate that for the next generation. There are solutions and fixes now so that we don't continue to carry over the cyclical loop of inequality. Well, I actually just wanted to clarify something because I actually think that the CDC, there are people on the CDC advisory committee and on the FDA advisory committee, in fact, but especially the CDC advisory committee who actually disagree with what Ben and I have just been saying. In fact, when the CDC advisory committee first voted, all they said in terms of the recommendation, so they made a distinction between should get the vaccine or should get the, the, the booster dose and may get the booster dose. They're saying that people 65 and older, as well as people 50 and older with chronic medical conditions should get the booster. They are saying that they are allowing um, the individuals who are 18 and over with high-risk occupation or high-risk medical issues to get the booster. But initially, the advisory committee actually voted against the idea of 18 and older and high-risk occupations getting the booster. The CDC director had to overturn that recommendation. So just to put a finer point on this is, yes, this is something that actually has quite significantly divided our medical community. Um, The thing is, though, here's where maybe I may disagree with with Vin a bit, but I I don't know. I'm, I'm curious about what you have to say about this is, I don't think that it should be up to the government to tell individuals who is considered high risk. I think we can offer recommendations, but I think at the end of the day, it would just be, it it would be really insane if the government were to say, well, this profession, you're considered high risk versus that one, you're not. I mean, there are some teachers who may be working in classrooms where there are lots of unmasked students. Shouldn't that be considered high risk or a grocery worker or somebody working in a meatpacking plant? That is high risk too, just as a nursing home is, is high risk. And I think my point simply is we should let people individuals decide if they are high risk. Lena, I, I we're, we're in the midst of a once in a century pandemic. And this is where I think government is vital to correct, to correct market distortions, which is to say, if I'm a Pfizer, if I'm a Moderna, I'm going to send my vaccine supply to the highest bidder, which is exactly what's happening. Jamaica has 10% of their, uh, their population is vaccinated. You, you take a, an hour flight north, you're going to be in Florida where vaccination rates are 80% or higher. Obviously, across the United States, we are oversupplied. That is purely because of willingness to pay. And that's what government, ideally a global set of governments, the WHO as the arbiter, and I mean, that's, that, that's, a, that's a future vision with WHO empowered to be able to arbitrate some of these decisions. They're struggling right now, but we're hopeful that that's what government can help correct these market distortions here. 
I agree. Outside of the, uh, an emergency crisis where tens of thousands of people are dying every day, I would prefer that people have individual liberty, individual freedom, access to the same set of services so that we can make our own decisions for our own health. But that is just not the set of circumstances we find ourselves in today. I, I agree with you, Vin, that government, that there is a role for government to be making these difficult calls. In this case, I just disagree about what that call should be. There was a Reuters Ipsos poll that found that 76% of those vaccinated would want a booster. A poll that was presented at the CDC Advisory Committee found that two out of every three vaccinated Americans said they want a booster shot as soon as they are available. Only 2% said that they would definitely not receive a booster. You cannot have an elected democratic government that is overruling people in this way. I do not want the government, our federal health officials to be telling me which patients I can give a booster to to better protect and which ones they cannot. Ultimately, the job of a government is to take care of its own people first and foremost. Alina, I don't disagree with those polling numbers. And, I, and, and you're right that those are the numbers. But we've created that reality through our messaging, through what the Biden administration has put out there, that more is better. So of course, we're, we've walked through a one-way door. We're telling people the president is behind the lectern in the East Room, more is better. So then people are going to say, well, more is better. That's a one-way door. That's why it's so difficult to walk this back. And you've elegantly articulated all the conflict in the scientific community here. The reason that we're even having these debates while we're having these poll numbers is because we've created the circumstances by which people expect it if they're being offered it. I think that if the Biden administration back in August had not said that there would be boosters given to Americans, there would be a huge outcry because we had already been seeing that boosters were being given in other countries. Israel, that has much better data collection than we do, the UK, Germany, and other places were already giving boosters. There were there was already a large um, majority of individuals here in the US who are clamoring, who are saying, "What we don't collect data the way that these other countries do. Why should we be waiting until vaccinated Americans start showing up in hospitals and dying? Let's preempt that. If we know that that's something that's going to happen based on what we're seeing in other countries, let's not wait for that to happen. And so I, I think the Biden administration, look, I haven't always agreed with a lot of their, their decisions, as Ben, you and I have talked about in the past. But I think this is one case where I do actually think that it was the right thing for the Biden administration back in August to foreshadow that boosters were going to be needed because the alternative, if they had not said that, I think we would be in an even worse place now with greater distrust of the government. Can we step back for a moment and, you know, we and talk about why the imbalance exists? We've alluded to it a little bit, and 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 as we go into that, I want to point out that in early October we reached the point in the United States where more people were getting booster shots than were getting first doses, which again speaks to the supply readiness in the United States versus uh, other parts of the world where it's just not the case. And I want to talk about uh, why, why is it that the United States got this and how is it that the United States got to have it, its supply of vaccine versus the rest of the world? Is it just the ability of these countries to pay for the for the goods? Is it about how contracts were negotiated? Was there transparency? Was there not? Um, wh- whoever, and, and, and you don't need to be debating this point, but just shedding light on it would be useful for us. 
Ben, do, do you want to talk about this? I think this is more your uh, your area of expertise. Sure, sure uh, Lena. I, you know, I think Andy Slavitt said a great uh, in a tweet a few months ago, which is to say that we bought it, we helped develop it, we have dibs on it, uh, and, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here to a certain extent, but it is purely the economics of it that uh, because we paid for it and we helped with the R and D significantly, and we placed multiple bets because we could afford to do so, we had first dibs. And we continue to buy. And now it's a fair bidding process, but we're just willing to uh, overpay, uh, certainly pay more to a specific uh, pharmaceutical company or manufacturer than what COVAX, which is negotiating on behalf of 175 countries, can pay for that same exact vaccine allotment. So this is purely economics and money. You know, it, it takes me back to something Jimmy Carter was quoted as saying when he was president that really, it really sort of bit him on the backside for having said this, but he was asked about some version of inequality and his answer was, well, life isn't fair. And in a way, in a way, Lena, that's sort of your point as well, that what we're seeing is, as you've said, in many parts of the world already, healthcare is already vastly inferior to what you can get in the developed world. But life isn't fair just it does sound to a lot of people i would imagine particularly if you're in those parts of the world and we're talking about life and death as ver- as a very harsh way to sum up why this imbalance exists and i know you didn't use those words and i'm in a sense saying that's what i heard you say but is that am i hearing you correctly on that Look, I first want to level set and just explain to you and to your listeners about my background. I am an immigrant. I grew I grew up in China. I came to to, to the U.S. as a child. Um, my I, I married a a South African whose entire family still lives in Johannesburg. My father lives in Canada. I used to do a lot of global health work, including in Sub-Saharan Africa. So. I am not blind to the impact of inequality around the world and to the substantial healthcare challenges, a lack of access, um, and um, and the vast disparities that that exist within our healthcare system. And yes, it is a moral and ethical issue. And yes, it absolutely affects us, especially at a time of a pandemic when we know that viruses don't respect country borders. I completely understand that. And I have members of my own family who are living in countries in parts of the world where they have not been able to be vaccinated because the they have not uh, there's not enough supply for, for, for them to be able to get it. So I feel this very personally as well. But to your point, that is the system that we're living in. It is completely unreasonable, I think, to be asking a country whose citizens funded the development and distribution of these vaccines. And when there are plenty of these vaccines already allocated to our citizens, that would otherwise, in a lot of cases, go to waste. It would be totally unreasonable for this country to say, well, we're not going to vaccinate our own people. We're going to give this to other parts of the world. That is just not a, I mean, I sometimes hear this not only with boosters, but also with vaccines for children. That is not something that we can do. That is not an appropriate decision that a country's leadership should be making. They need to watch out for their own citizens first and foremost. Well, at the same time, also doing more globally. And just to say, I mean, President Biden has um, already announced that there is a 1.1 billion, I believe, um, a dose do- donation. The U.S. is already donating more doses than any other country. And so both of these things can be done, 
But the responsibility of President Biden, as he as he is taking very seriously, I'm so glad he made this decision, is to take care of Americans first and foremost. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. More debate in a moment. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. So, Finn Gupta, uh, as Lena pointed out, the United States from the, at the government level made a moral choice, and you're asking for a different moral choice to have been made or still to be made at this point. And I'm wondering exactly the point that uh, Lena is getting on is politically, how could any president, whether it was President Trump before or President Biden now, tell the American people, we're, we, we got our first dose, we're going to have to wait in line for the boosters. I mean, how, how could he have, either of the he's, survived that politically or managed that politically? I, I think it, it would require deafness in messaging, which uh, with all due respect to, to many people who I admire in his administration, on the healthcare side, I think they've lacked. Uh, let's be clear here. There was a way to interpret the data coming out of Israel, out of Canada, out of the United Kingdom, and make sense of it to the American people. That that data showed that while there was waning immunity, those people who were coming into the hospital with vaccine breakthrough disease looked the exact same as the people that are coming into the hospital in the United States coming in with vaccine breakthrough disease into the hospital. They're 65 and older. They're otherwise considered high risk because of a medical condition or because of their age. That's not a complicated message to land, that we need to provide boosters to those that need it. Because you know what? We do something similar for other things as well. That's not controversial. And I don't think that's all that complicated a message. And that to protect all of us, because we don't want another Delta variant arising, you know, the Delta variant went from Mumbai to the Bay Area within a week. We could have also doubled down on the importance of doing everything we can to vaccinate the world. And the fact is, is that we're not doing everything that we can. So there's a self there's a self interest argument to be made as well. Then it's the opposite of the moral argument in a, in, in terms of that spectrum. But the well, argument I, could be made that if the rest of the world is vaccinated, the, it 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 it's a we're we're moving the ball significantly down the field and ending this pandemic. Am I correct about that? And it matters how quickly we do it. Number one, number two, I would say we haven't talked enough about the hygiene hypothesis. It's okay to get sick. It's okay to have mild symptoms. In fact, it's good to develop your immune system naturally to some degree. We're seeing children who've been kept away from uh, communal environments for a year coming in, spiking children's hospitals across the country with RSV, which is kids flu for lack of a better way to say it. That is abnormal. That should tell to all of us that we cannot continue to boost our way out of mild illness, that some degree of exposure is important. I think there's an open question right now about this issue of how many shots do you actually need? We really just don't know. I mean, there are, we know for other vaccines, as an example, that you have a wide spectrum. For example, you've got the hepatitis vaccine that is a three-dose series. You're three doses and then you're done. You've got the tetanus vaccine that you have to get a booster every 10 years. And then you have the flu vaccine that because of how frequently there are mutations that develop in influenza, you end up having to get a flu vaccine every year. We don't know where COVID-19 falls in the spectrum. There are respected infectious diseases specialists like Dr. Anthony Fauci who believe that COVID-19, the COVID-19 vaccine could actually be a three-dose vaccine. And it may 
end up being that we are three doses and we're done. So I don't actually think we know that we need to be boosting people every six months. We, we, we know there, there are millions of Americans who are frightened of the vaccines that have been developed um, and uh, that there are small, some small number of cases of people um, being harmed by vaccines, particularly I understand uh, adolescent males uh, have uh, some degree of heart uh, challenges. Uh, you can please clarify that for me just so that I don't scare anybody. But my question is whether there's any risk for the individual for getting boosters that we know of, or is that completely uncharted territory? Well, let me maybe clarify first and say that there are, we know that the vaccines do have side effects, as do every vaccine and every single medical treatment. The side effects, the most common side effects that we see with the vaccines are things like soreness at the injection site, overall not feeling so great, some fever, fatigue, body aches, etc. Things that really are pretty mild and resolve within a couple of days. With the Johnson Johnson vaccine, the one dose vaccine thus far, there is a very rare but very serious blood clotting issue that is predominant in younger women, women under the age of 50. And then with the mRNA vaccines with Pfizer and Moderna, there is a rare um, a, and serious issue of myocarditis, pericarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle and of the lining around the heart that tends to be seen more often in younger males, in adolescent and, and younger males. I want to clarify, though, that the I don't think we should be calling this harm because mm-hmm. in the case of myocarditis in particular, these tend to be mild. Actually, you could get myocarditis from COVID. That's a lot more severe. And from other things that are a lot more severe, these cases of myocarditis tend to be self-resolving, meaning that even with just rest, ibuprofen, some fluids, people get completely better with no long-term effects. And with uh, to your question about the booster dose, it appears that the third dose has similar types of side effect profile to that second dose. And so people can still get that fatigue and chills and body aches as the most common type of side effect. Myocarditis in theory is also possible, although also at a theoretically, it's it's a very rare effect. Um, But I, you know, just again, don't want to be, we need to be fair about the side effects, let people know about Mm -hmm. them, but be, but be, Fair about what they actually are. I want to read again from um, Finn Gupta. I want to read from the uh, editorial in Scientific American. The authors say, if the G20 countries share their vaccine supplies with COVAX now, they could be immediately distributed to 92 low and middle income countries. That seems to me like a big undertaking, but the, the article seems to indicate that it's something that could happen pretty quickly and directly. So I want to ask you, you know, if, if you could wave a magic wand uh, put some sort of damper on the uh, the enthusiasm for booster shots in the United States and access to booster shots outside of the groups that you've already have said you feel uh, would be justified in getting them. Well, what would you do? What would have to happen next to get these supplies not heading towards uh, all of these American arms, but to people around the world who haven't had their first shots? I think Covax needs to change its how it thinks about distributing vaccines in, in what remains an emergency. Tell, tell us about COVAX. So COVAX is a, a, a basically a distribution mechanism that has been set up by a lot of different multilateral organizations working in common, uh, under the oversight of the UN. So the WHO is sort of the lead sponsor of this organization. There's uh, the Global uh, Alliance on Vaccines and Immunizations, Gavi, that helps to actually secure 
commitments, uh, actual uh, allotments of vaccines for manufacturers. And then ultimately, COVAX is this organization that says, well, we're going to target a certain amount of every participating country's population to receive uh, a donation of vaccines. Um, and they're going to they're do everything. They're going to they're actually purchase it at wholesale, uh, ideally. So they're going to get a reduced cost per vaccine and actually uh, help with the logistics of getting it to that country. The problem with COVAX is they said, sort of point blank, we are going to make sure that a certain percentage of every country is vaccinated by the end of the year. Initially, that number was about 20%. They moved that up slightly. Versus flooding the zone with, of, uh, uh, in countries with vaccines where they're at, mo- at the highest risk of losing uh, the most amount of life. So Indonesia, for example, desperately needs more vaccines. They're exhibiting a pretty devastating surge. But COVAX said, you know what, we're only going to keep you at 20% because that's what the threshold is for every participating country. It doesn't make sense. Right now, they need to be targeting towards need, not towards a number. I, you were mentioning, I was just looking up the um, the, the goals that COVAX set, it was by the end of September, they wanted 10% of every country in the world vaccinated, which did not happen. By the end of the year, 40% of every country. And by the middle of 2022, 70% of every country. Uh, so you, you're, as you were saying, they, they wanted to have sort of the same percentage every place. And you felt that that was an unwise choice. But what motivated that? What was the behind that scheme? Of giving everybody is it was it just again the appearance of fairness? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I think what ends up happening this is this is the this is a direct criticism of the Biden administration is they are talking, in my view, um, out of both sides of their mouth. They they continue to claim that this is a false choice. Lena, tons of respect for Lena, but I, I think she's she's also amplifying that that line of messaging here, saying that we can do both when in fact it's a trade off, and we have to accept that there's a trade off that by delivering boosters, that means less supply in the real time for countries in our own hemisphere because we're pricing them out. But yes, COVAX and the global community of nations has prized fairness, and this has been the best way to gain consensus on distribution. I don't think it's correct. It's it's lost. It's caused some people to lose confidence in COVAX, which is why you're seeing a lot of just uh, direct uh, uh, contracting between countries and manufacturers as a result. Uh, so, th- so there is some harm here in their approach. Lena, do you have any thoughts on on Covax and or to add to uh, Finn's assessment? No, I mean, I, I think I have made my my points. I mean, it's not that I disagree, of course, with the idea of getting vaccines to the rest of the world. They, I just don't see in any really in any world how you would not you you would not take care of your own people first, which is the reason why. The U.S. is not the outlier here. We're seeing Israel, U.K., Germany make the same kind of decisions around boosters. And in fact, ahead of the U.S. in this, because they also feel strongly, you do have to take care of the rest of the world, but it's like that oxygen mask on on a plane. You have to take care of your own people first. Well, then why why do you call that a false choice? I mean, Vin is saying that if there's just so much to go around, some of it has to either be there for Americans and other people in other developed countries and less for others or not. And you're saying that that's a false choice. And I want to understand why. I think it's a false choice because there is this implication, and I've heard this in particular around vaccines for children, That, um, which, by the way, the, the World Health Organization also says that we should not be vaccinating our kids. We should be giving it to other parts of the world. The implication is that if we don't vaccinate our children, then the rest of the world is going to be fine. 
But that's not the case. Even if we gave every single dose that was allocated to every single person under the age of 18 in the U.S. to other parts of the world, that would still be covering less than 1% of the world. And the same thing when you look at boosters. If you gave every single dose of, of the boosters instead of the U.S. to other parts of the world, that is not the solution to the global vaccine shortage. And so I call this a false choice because there is so much that the U.S. can and should be doing to increase the vaccine distribution around the world, which is something that we haven't even talked about. It's not enough to just have vaccine supply. You also have to have, you want to set up manufacturing facilities in other parts of the world. There are also, it's not just Pfizer and Moderna that we're talking about. There's also AstraZeneca. There are also other vaccines that may be more easily distributed and transported and delivered in other parts of the world. Increasing vaccine distribution is something that we can also really work on here. And so I just object to this notion that somehow if my children are getting um, are getting a booster or if my elderly patient or somebody else is getting a booster that somehow or my children are getting a vaccine and somebody else is getting a booster that somehow that is directly taking away a dose from somebody else around the world when we can be doing a lot of other things to also increase the ultimate goal, which is to get people around the world to get the vaccine. Finn, do you want to respond to that? You know, I, I would say that this is this is a communications problem. We have not adequately described the threat to the American people that is clear and present. And it's not, if you're otherwise healthy, less than 65, COVID. It's what's happening everywhere else. And it is a supply problem in part. And and, and that's where I, I agree. There's technology transfer issues. There's actually being able to manufacture more of this vaccine, whether it's AstraZeneca or Sinopharm or Pfizer in other parts of the world, we're seeing that capability increase um, literally as we speak, which is great uh, for, uh, and it will be a benefit to all of us in the future. And yet in real time, it is about supply because the supply continues to go to the highest bidder right now. And we're, we could easily, there are mechanisms to redistribute that. I, I'd like to ask you as we wrap up, um, the sort of conversation you have over dinner with friends when they ask you, when is this thing going to end? I'm married to a physician who is um, very involved in the public health aspect of this. She's guiding a, a university in uh, its COVID response. And when I ask her that question, she says, I, I don't really know. Um, it, it may in a certain way always be with us at an endemic level, um, which is not incredibly encouraging, but I'm wondering if either of you has more encouraging answer for friends who ask you over dinner, when is this all going to end? Uh, I'll let you go first, Lena, and then to you, Vin. Well, I just wrote a Washington Post op-ed, in fact, about this exact topic, about how I think that the end of the pandemic is actually not far. And I don't mean that COVID is going to disappear. That's not going to happen um, in the foreseeable future, at least. I think you're right that this is something that we're going to have to learn to live with. But I think there are three things that need to happen in order for COVID to not be the dominant issue that determines how we live. As in, it shouldn't be the number one um, thought when we're deciding about school or work or seeing our family and travel, et cetera. And I think there are three things. Two out of those three things are actually not far. One is having vaccines available, including for our younger children. I think many parents are living as if we are not vaccinated ourselves because we don't want to get our children infected. And so that may not be far from the far on the horizon. We may see younger children down to five years old be able to get back to be able to get the vaccine in late October, early November. Even younger kids, my kids' age, maybe by early 2022. That would be great. The second thing is having early outpatient oral treatment. 
and that's really important because that can turn COVID, even for somebody who's unvaccinated, from a potentially deadly disease into something that may be a much milder illness. And again, we had good news from Merck that it looks like they have an oral pill, an oral antiviral that may do this. And so that's not far from the horizon either. And then the third, and this, we're not that close to it, is widespread testing. I think we need to have rapid tests available for everyone to be able to take whenever they want, essentially, to um, do surveillance testing. And I hope it becomes the norm for people to take tests before going to school and work and social settings. If we have all three of these things, I think we can really live with COVID and not have it be a dominant priority in our lives. Some some optimism there. What about you, Ven? Do you share that optimism? I do. I, I, I suspect that we're going to be moving away from controls and from this dominating our life by end of March of 2022, if uh, just to put my, my marker down, I, I suspect we're, we're in for a very difficult cold and flu season because there's more than just COVID out there. Uh, and, and that's what concerns me. And I do, the, the, in addition to all the interventions that give me hope that Lena just really elegantly mentioned, it's ultimately going to come down to what are hospitals looking like and what's enough capacity, kind of getting back to that concept of, uh, of, of flattening the curve. Why do we use that term? We used it because we were worried about hospitals surging. And I don't think that's going to go away for at least the next four to five months because of the multitude of threats in front of us. But we'll see some relief once the warm weather comes about in the springtime and I do think that once hospitals are, are, are offloaded a bit, that's going to allow us to say we have enough room here to really, really renormalize without broad controls. Well, you've both given us a shred of hope, some light to look forward to. And the other thing I want to say about the way you conducted this conversation, this debate, is it exactly hit the target we aim for at Intelligence Squared, uh, where you both disagreed quite vociferously on the central point, but it was also clear two things that you agree on a lot – and that you have deep respect for one another and for the way that you both do your jobs and uh, and the, the way that you both speak and educate the public on this issue. And you educated us a lot as well. So I want to thank you for the way that you did this and for being part of Intelligence Squared. So uh, Dr. Lena Wen, Dr. Vin Gupta, thank you so much for joining us on Intelligence Squared. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you and with Vin. It was a great conversation and I respect you both very much. So thank you. Thank you, Lena. Um, and, and thank you, John. This is a privilege. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan. <laughs>